You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Joining us today is Milo Runkel. Milo is the founder of Mercy for Animals, an international organization dedicated to constructing a compassionate food system, and also is the co-founder of the Good Food Institute, a nonprofit that exists to make the global food system better for the planet, people, and animals. And I'm proud to announce that this conversation with Milo is brought to you as part of a partnership between the Poetry of Impact and Nexus. Welcome, Milo. Thanks for having me, Gino. It's great to be here. Yeah. Hey, you know, I think you and I have quite a bit in common. We both uh, grew up on uh, small family farms. I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley of California in, in Tracy, California, uh, in particular on a small dairy farm. But it sounds like you even grew up in a smaller village outside of Columbus. Can you walk us through that uh, period of time where where and how you sort of grew up and how it influences, uh, you know, the kind of work that you do today? Yeah, absolutely. I was slated to become a fifth generation crop farmer. In fact, there is still a Runkle Farms in operation today in our little village of St. Paris, Ohio, population of less than 2,000 people. And like most people who grew up in rural environments, I just always had this natural connection with the earth. Um, I spent much of my childhood exploring the nearby creeks and ponds and fields, looking for wildlife and animals. And it was really our family's dogs and cats, um, Sadie, our dog, and Clyde, our cat, that taught me at a very young age that other creatures have minds, they have personalities, they have emotions, they have needs, that there is someone, not something, looking back at us from behind those eyes. Mm -hmm. And I guess now, you know, looking back, you'd call that empathy uh, for other creatures. In this environment, you know, I would spend a lot of time with my, my uncles who were both hunters, trappers, fishermen. And I remember very distinctly at a young age, watching them skin rabbits uh, while they were still alive or scaling fish that were still gasping for air. And it struck me. Um, it just really shook my, my core. It broke my heart, um, seeing animals in distress. So I think it was always sort of in me um, to care about animals and not just our dogs and cats. I, I was able to see pretty young that the distinctions that we make between animals that we consider food and those that we consider companions are really human constructs. It doesn't have a lot to do with the animals themselves. So that was, that was the core. Um, when I was 11 years old, I was sitting in our, our dining room with my parents. We were having lunch and the television was on. And there was probably a 30-second story on the local news about people protesting the sale of fur coats at the mall in Dayton, Ohio, about 40 minutes uh, from our house. And I remember they showed a few seconds of footage of mink trapped in leg hold traps and beavers trapped underwater drowning. 
And that was the very first time at 11 years old that I heard the term animal rights activist. And there was just something that stuck with me. And I was like, wow, there are people in the world who feel the same way that I feel when I see my uncle trapping these, these same animals. And they're not saying, you know, this is okay. And this is just the way that things are. They're saying, no, this is inhumane and this is unnecessary and unacceptable. So that planted a seed in my mind as an 11 year old that, that we can do better for animals and that there were a small but vocal um, movement of people who were, were taking action on behalf of animals. Fast forward a few years, that same mall I was at for an Earth Day event, and there was a local animal protection organization there. They had black and white trifold brochures, and I went up and I picked up all the brochures. I didn't probably even talk to anyone at the booth. <laughs> and I remember the car ride home with my mom reading these brochures about industrial animal agriculture and seeing for the first time images of breeding pigs locked in gestation crates and hens in battery cages and, and calves and veal crates. And my heart again, just sinking. And by the time we rolled into our farm, I told my mom that I was a vegetarian and I was never eating animals again. And, you know, that was sort of a catalyst for my, um, you know, deeper, awakening, I guess, if you would, to the, the way in which animals are, are trapped in our um, economy and trapped in our um, food system in particular. Well, I'm curious, how did, how did the sort of the negotiation, navigation with the family uh, go for you? Because obviously, if you grow up around monocultures that are, you know, soybean, corn, which is also really largely supporting um, animal feed, to a large extent, and then around you know the scaling of fish that are alive, uh, still gasping for you know, to actually be in the water and not be out of the water. Right. Um, and so, how how has that navigation been? Because I mean, that's probably not an easy conversation. I'm guessing. Yeah, it um, you know it 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 it, it was not the most sort of uh, unifying of positions to take, I think, in, in the family or in the community. Uh, I, I, I have to say, I, I really won the parental lottery with the, the mother and father that I was fortunate enough, have been fortunate enough to have. My mother was a teacher. My dad was a veterinarian, um, had a horseback riding program. That's how we met my mom. She responded to a, a one ad for a horseback riding instructor. They met, um, you know, and here I am. So I think in many ways, I sort of owe my existence to animals, <laughs> to, to horses and others. So both of my parents had had their own compassion and, and, and connection with animals, for sure. Uh, and they were, in many ways, very progressive um, for, for folks in this, this community, which, of course, growing up, I didn't really recognize until I sort of got a bit bit older. So my mother was supportive. She was the type of mom. Um, she, she passed away when I was 17, but she was the type of mom who uh, just kind of always had my back and was very supportive of my own life journey, which I think is sort of the best gift that a parent can give to their child. And my dad was very much um, the same way. 
So again, the extended family, not so supportive, <laughs> not, um, not really understanding it. It was definitely a point of contention at, at family gatherings, but you know, my mom would go out and buy vegetarian cookbooks and started cooking vegetarian meals almost exclusively for the family. I think she sort of intuitively knew that there were some real health benefits to, to eating a more plant-based diet even at that time. But yeah, it was, it was definitely a struggle. You know, this was in a time and a place before we had Beyond Meat and Impossible and, you know, pretty much everywhere you go, you could find you can find, you know, dairy alternatives. This was just not the case at the time. So you really had to seek out, um, you know, small health food stores in certain communities and, and get sort of specialty items. Yeah. And so it sounds like your mom was quite the bedrock in of support mm -hmm. and also accountability, I'm guessing to, you know, some extent, you probably never wanted to disappoint her because of, you know, how proud you were of being able to sort of navigate your own path. Um, she obviously left your life a little earlier, probably than anticipated. How has that loss influenced who you are today and seeing how you're living? Yeah, her name, uh, her name is Joyce. And today is actually her seven would would have been her 71st birthday. So I, um, you know, talked to my my sister and, and my dad earlier today, and they're going to her her grave um, this afternoon in Ohio. So yeah, she, she was diagnosed with cancer when I was 11 years old. She had breast cancer that, that spread and metastasized and was in and out of hospitals for six years. So in many ways, it was a slow separation, um, but it was, a, it was at a time where developmentally, I was you know changing a lot from 11 to 17. And it, uh, you know, it is a wound. It is a, a like a spiritual wound to, to lose a parent, um, I think at any age, but, you know, especially when, when you're young and, and developing and that sort of support system is, is no longer there. But, you know, now I look back and, and one just really grateful to have had such a great parent. I realize that not everyone, you know, is, has parents that are so supportive of them. And there was a lot of teaching about love and kindness and creativity and curiosity um, that I, I got from her in 17 years. Um, and so I, I really sort of count my blessings with that. It does force independence in a certain way to lose a parent at that age. You just kind of have no other choice but to, um, you know, carry on. And in many ways, I guess I can never really answer this question because I don't know what it would be like to still have her here. Yeah. So like, I mean, how is it messaged from her vantage point? I mean, she obviously, um, you know, probably anticipated by living longer than what she did when like she was messaging it to you and your, your sister um, or your sisters and brothers. Um, I mean, how was the message? Like, I mean, what were some of the sort of the, you know, the last messages or, or, you know, the messages along the way that, I mean, sort of took and stuck with you? Yeah, I, 
my family is hasn't traditionally been the type of family that really spends a lot of time talking about their feelings. Uh, and again, I didn't realize that there were families that actually did <laughs> did that until I, I I got older and did a lot of therapy and a lot of plant medicine and you know d- took on my own healing. Um, and I think with that healing can come you know, generational healing within families. And uh, so the conversations that I would have with my mom now, if she was sick and dying would be vastly different than, than a 16 or 17 year old version of myself was able to have. So I think we were largely left with just loving presence with each other, just this, you know, deep sense of, of loving presence and acts of service and, um, and, and honestly a lot left unsaid, but, but a lot, um, expressed just through her being, um, in the world. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that notion of healing is really interesting because we're, you know, we're, we're definitely living in an age where now it's becoming more acceptable to, um, be external about and share, um, you know, that other dimension of ourselves, our, our, our sentient feeling, uh, our felt sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned some plant medicine, uh, you mentioned therapy, um, and uh, can you connect the dots for us on how you sort of now after going through sort of that healing with the plant medicine and the animals and like, how fundamentally, how fundamental is actually healing is actually a part of the equation of activism in terms of like, unless we address the wound per se, any type of external mechanisms that portray to correct the problem are still embedded with a wounded, a woundedness, right? And so there's a potential disconnect there. And I've always been, I think that's part of my interest in the impact space is to sort of humanize our endeavors enough to realize that our work is embedded with our, with our existential vibration. So that even if it appears that we're doing good work in climate and, you know, animal welfare, gender, you know, sort of name your vertical, if the source is wounded, there's something always, you can feel it in the room sometimes, in the activist room. It's like, wow, how do you know when you're acting out of like a salve, like a salve for the womb, or a comp- or it's a compensatory response that you're acting out in the world? So can you walk us through that a little bit? Wow. Uh, what a beautiful, profound question. And there's so much to unpack there, of course. I, I definitely looking back, feel like there were a lot of wounds (laughs) that I was harnessing, um, as energy for, for activism. Some were, you know, the, the loss of a parental figure, that wound also, you know, growing up queer at this time, I was bullied. I was physically assaulted. Like I was made to feel like an outcast who was un physically and mentally, emotionally unsafe in my community. And I think like many, um, 
queer children and, and people like those can be deep wounds as well. And, and the wounds of, of being empathetic to animal suffering. I think a lot of, of animal ab advocates uh, feel that, and that can be very alienating and isolating from humans. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had dedicated animal activists tell me that they, you know, love animals more than people. And they have, you know, very unpleasant things to say about humans. And those are all wounds, you know, to, to witness violence being perpetrated against animals on a day-to-day -day basis as an activist is a, a wound that can get deeper and deeper. And for a long time, I just thought that that was the sort of, and, and I thought this in a very unconscious way, that those wounds were kind of the only source of energy for activism. And I think we see that in whatever the activism space is. It could be animals, it could be climate, it can be, you know, it, LGBT rights. You pick the, the bucket, if you will. Activism can be driven by anger or it can be driven by love. And I think that love is, is, is um, change that's driven by, by a, a healed um, being or a healed spirit where anger is activism that's driven by a, a, a wounded and traumatized spirit. And I think both can be, you know, sort of pushing the ball or moving the ball, if you will, in the same direction. But as you said, the, the energy behind it are very, very different. And you can, you can sense that, as you said, uh, in various activist circles and various um, movements and, and spaces. And I think it's part of what contributes to very high burnout rates, um, not only in the animal movement, but I think many movements in general is because it's, uh, you know, how long can we live our lives with, with anger as a primary emotion that drives us? Um, it's just ultimately not sustainable. So, you know, I mean, this, you know, this notion of uh, love and uh, so we have this sort of this idea of love actually is a very sustainable emotion. In fact, it's probably a generative emotion, right? Exactly, yeah. To a degenerative emotion, which is anger, which takes an enormous amount of inputs. Right. That are finite. Yeah. You know, you only have so many fine, you only have so many inputs from the anger pool that you can put into the, into the body. So as a part of so your practice on and staying on the side of love as the source of, you know, re regenerative energy. What type of practices have you found helpful to actually stay centered in, you know, in that space as you've worked through, you know, these organizations and, and through your own personal life? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I, I think part of it is recognizing, I think we all have our own natural defaults and some, some of our defaults are, much more loving and you know much more joyful and some of us that takes a bit more you know to rev up the engines and 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 operate in that space yeah. if you will and I, again i think that's just part of recognizing 
you know, that, that reality. Um, and for me, I think I, my default is this more sort of neutral space. I'm not, my, my default's not overly happy or joyful or loving, you know? And, uh, and so for me, my practice is crucial. Um, otherwise the default, I will slide back into that default and it's not, it's not a pretty thing, but I know that about myself in terms of practice, you know, it, um, for me, there's, there's physical practice and there's, there's mental and emotional practice. My, my daily practice is waking up. Now I'm, I'm doing some, some weight training, uh, you know, moving my body in that capacity, building strength, then journaling, um, doing some pranayama breath work and short meditation. And then a bit of yoga either early in the day or at the end of the day. And those as a daily practice, um, sort of help keep me on, on track. I have found a lot of benefit with, um, with talk therapy, uh, throughout my life. And, and as I mentioned before, through plant medicines, uh, ayahuasca has been really, um, just life-changing for me. So right now, about once a year, I go to Peru and I see a shaman there and, and do a few ayahuasca ceremonies. And it, it in the beginning, was very much a, um, almost a, an addressment of, 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 of trauma and things that were unseen. And now it's a bit of like a tune-up and a reconnection, uh, or as, as the shaman say, like a cosmic uh, Buddha car wash, just like washing away some of, you know, what, what has built up in our society, because I think our society does in many ways reward mindlessness and, you know, constant stimulation and stress and busyness and all of these things. And so even when we have really spiritually transformative experiences, whether that comes from meditation or through plant medicine or yoga or breath work or all of the above. Um, I think that there is a, a, a sort of cultural societal magnet that is sort of pulling us back towards disconnect, um, disconnect from our own mind, body, spirit, community, environment, and I think so many of the challenges that we face, whether it's climate change or the, the suffering of billions of animals is a symptom of that disconnect. So we all need to find our own tools, which may look very different for each of us, um, to remain connected. So I'm guessing that uh, you, you founded the Mercy for Animals, co-founder of the Good Food Institute. You know, there's something inherent about operating organizations that decenters people because of exactly what you're talking about. There's a slew of different stakeholders, paradoxical decisions you have to make. Um, you're weighing a lot of different um, um, types of people that have to come into the network in order to make it work. But where I'm going with this is that um, it would have been a lot easier for you to piggyback off somebody with some other organizations and you just being staying Milo, the non-founder and just Milo, the personal guy, uh, you know, working for XYZ organization or helping, but you decided to actually start and found, uh, you know, your own organization. 
And I guess like, what was the motivation to do that? And then also just from a real like cultural sense, like where was the vacuum or what was the vacuum that you were actually responding to that you didn't see that was out there? Yeah, great question. And I have had also countless people come up to me at conferences over the, the decades and say, hey, how do I start my own organization? And my, my first word of advice is don't, don't do it. Um, if there is an organization out there that's doing good work in the area that you're interested in, support them, work with them, work for them. Um, but sometimes there isn't and there is a, there is a gap. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the, the founding story of Mercy for Animals and then the Good Food Institute because they're very different. Um, and, and that's partly because I was 15 when I founded Mercy for Animals and I was, what, 32 when I founded, uh, co-founded the Good Food Institute after 18 years of running a nonprofit. So I was, my, my understanding of the world and of running nonprofits and, and driving change were very different. And so the, the paths were very different. So Mercy for Animals started after an animal abuse case at my local high school. Um, there was a, a, a teacher, Steve Jenkins, who was teaching a Future Farmers of America class. And Mr. Jenkins was also a pig farmer. He had a pr pretty large pig operation. And it came time in the curriculum where the class was going to do a dissection project. And so Mr. Jenkins decided that he would um, kill about a half a dozen piglets on his farm and bring them to the class to be used um, in the dissection project. When he arrived to the school, one of the piglets was still alive. She was standing on top of the others um, in this bucket. Uh, a student who did some part-time work on Mr. Jenkins' farm walked over, grabbed this piglet by her hind legs and slammed her head first into the ground. The piglet didn't die. Her skull was now fractured. She was bleeding out of the mouth. She was vocalizing just in, in really horrible, horrible distress. Um, a few of the students who were just really saddened by what had happened, took this baby piglet, left the classroom, went down the hall to the classroom of Molly Fearing, who was a, a new teacher at the school. She had just moved from Columbus. And Molly had a reputation for being a vegetarian and someone who cared about animals. So Molly left the school with this piglet and went to a local veterinarian. They examined the piglet, realized very quickly there was nothing that they could do other than euthanize this piglet and, and put her out of her misery. Molly then went to the sheriff's department and filed a cruelty to animals complaint Surprisingly, charges actually were filed. It went to court. It was a big deal in this farming community. And the very first day of that trial, the judge dismissed the case because killing piglets by, by slamming them into the ground, head first into the ground, is considered uh, common practice. It's considered thumping is the term for it or blunt head trauma. And in Ohio, like pretty much every other state, if something is considered standard practice, it is exempt from cruelty prosecution. It, it doesn't really matter if it causes suffering or not. If it's standard, it's, a, it's legalized. So that 
that happened in 1999. Um, this was a few years after I had gone vegetarian and started that journey. And when I heard about this, this incident, um, I was really shocked and it, it drove home, you know, what I had been reading about in terms of industrial farms and, and farming exemptions and made it very real and made it very close to home and made it very personal. So Molly and I connected and we decided that there needed to be an organization in our small farming community that would give a voice to farm animals. And so Mercy for Animals was born out of that. We had no money, no backing, no idea what the organization was really going to do, how to make impact. Like we, we had no idea. Like, honestly, if we did, I would have probably thought long and hard about it. Um, but we started and, you know, the organization organically grew from there. That being said, there are over 30,000 animal organizations in the U.S. Most of them are dog and cat organizations. Most of them are small rescue organizations. There are very, very few still to this day that focus on advocating for farmed animals. The, the, animal, the animal rights or animal protection movement historically focused on vivisection or, or animal experimentation and then on the fur industry and even within the large animal organizations a very small percentage of time and resources were going to advocate for farm animals even at that time so i you know it it grew from there now it's the world's largest farm animal protection organization um, and has implemented and helped change policies on a corporate and uh, legislative level that affect about 2 billion animals um, every year. But that's the origin story. It was one piglet in my hometown, no idea, no, 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 no concept of a three-year strategy or any of that. It just organically grew. The Good Food Institute was quite the opposite. It was being in the movement for almost two decades and seeing the need for the work that Mercy for Animals was doing, but also seeing the need for innovation and thinking differently about solutions, not just focusing on the problems and what's wrong and legislating our way out of it, but actually focusing on the solutions and what is right and how do we create and foster and support protein alternatives that are better for you know people animals the environment and can compete on cost taste and convenience and the good food institute was born out of that idea we wanted it to stand on its own and not be viewed as a project of an animal organization but truly be able to engage all stakeholders from the executives of the big meat companies or protein companies to government officials and others who um you know, may simply not agree that animals, you know, should be treated or not, not used in, 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 in the food system, but could agree that the environment would benefit from changing our, our protein sources and that there was a huge market opportunity and need there for, for other reasons like preventing pandemics and, and cleaner water systems and preventing deforestation and those types of things. And, and it, that, that theory of change has really um, panned out in a great way. And um, Bruce Friedrich, who I've, I've known for a couple decades, um, is, is doing just a brilliant job um, leading the organization to um, really, really impactful work. So 
Jack Dorsey splits his time between uh, Square and Twitter. Uh, like, how do you navigate splitting your time between these two organizations? And I mean, what uh, does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, so as of last month, I am fully hands, officially hands off with both organizations. Um, you know, I was the president of Mercy for Animals for 18 years and then the board chair for the first 22 years of the organization, um, GFI on the board for the first four years or so. But I, I do very much have a founder spirit and entrepreneurial spirit. I either genetically or just through observation, my dad was also an entrepreneur, started as a veterinarian, but then had a computer business is now in real estate. He's just jumped from one arena to the next, but very much with a can do attitude. So for me, I had that role model from a young age before I even knew what I was absorbing. And I think in in many ways, the sign of of real success is being able to build something and have it live and grow and sustain without you. And I, you know, that very much is, is the case for the Good Food Institute and, and Mercy for Animals now. So I'm now, I'm now birthing other projects. <laughs> and so I, I kind of have four or five um, areas and, and projects that I am in various stages of right now. One is a documentary that we're three years into production on about environmental justice issues in, in North Carolina. Um, one is working with a company called Lovely Foods, which is engineering casein proteins to grow in plants. I'm also in deep exploration for launching my own alternative protein company. And, um, and this one is a little bit, well, there's, there's two others. One is launching an organization that would be like the Good Food Institute, but for plastic alternatives to help address um, the plastic crisis. And then um, I'm also very interested in, in psilocybin mushrooms and their use for, for therapy. And again, helping to reconnect um, people to mind, body, spirit, uh, community, and environment. Those are all in different stages of, of development and legality. So some of them, there's less of a path forward than others, but um, you know, I, I, I will, my, my, my sort of time, uh, pie chart will change as those various projects mature. And does, um, you have a particular like leaning because I mean, there's quite a few different aspects to what you just shared, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, what are you looking to actually feed inside of yourself right now? Or like, I mean, what's coming up for you right now? Um, and it's not like these are binary choices, but just like, you know, I mean, there's really times where like, oh, I want to drive a product. Oh, there's really a time where I want to be educational about something. Oh, there's really a time where I want to um, not only drive a product, but then I want to capitalize it. So it's just not product development, but then I want to be out in the networks and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, where, like, where is Milo at the moment with that? Yeah. So, you know, m- my my view is that to address some of the most pressing issues that our society faces today is going to take a multitude of approaches and strategies. And I think with, with one without the other, for example, only focusing on the why and not the how or only legislating, but not innovating, we're just, we're not going to get there. Um, 
And I think without, with only innovation, without, you know, the, the legal framework catching up, we're also not going to, to address the whole picture either. So these, these various initiatives sort of, in, in, in my view, address different um, components of, of global issues that we face and also allow me to exercise different skill sets and just stimulate my, my spirit and my mind in different ways as well. And some I hope will be wildly successful and some, you know, may, may shrivel up in the, the conceptual stage. <laughs> and, and I'm okay with that. You see, is there ever sort of a hankering um, that goes on for um, a general coherency around 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 this all? You, you hinted at it in this last response, but I sort of want to end here, and this is my final question, is, is that um, is there sort of a singularity that you see? So you broke it up into five different areas, but let's flesh what up that singularity is that, you know, like the essence component. You talked a little bit about like, hey, you can't really address this stuff unless you address this systematically through policy, through innovation, through tech, through finance, da, 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 da. And, but let's just go underneath those secular terms and those secular organizational business financial terms and like, what's at the heart of it all for you? Leaving this planet in, a, in better shape than it was when I was born, um, at least that's the hope. I think it, it doesn't take much of an awareness to understand that that's not the, the place that the planet is now than it was 37 years ago. Like we're losing, we're losing our wild space. We're inundating our oceans with plastic. We're killing more animals for food than ever before. Like the trajectory is in the other direction, but I, I really believe that the next 10 years is make it or break it for humanity. Like we are very much on borrowed time with the climate disaster and all of the other manifestations that come along with that. And so I, I really do feel like we all are, are called, you could say it morally or ethically, but to me now it's more spiritually to bring our, our, our skills, our talents, our superpowers to the table. And that the manifestation of that is going to look differently for, for all of us. Um, and, and for me, that has largely been through the lens of, of protecting or helping animals. Um, and that could look like a documentary that could look like an organization that could look like a business. Um, but to me, I've always felt how we treat those who are, the weakest and most vulnerable amongst us is a lot about who we are as people. And, you know, I think farmed animals are just the weakest and most vulnerable amongst us in many ways. And they're really completely at our mercy. And so I have been privileged enough to be born a human being, to be born, be born a white male with finances, you know, and connections. And there, there is part that part of me that feels like there is also an obligation, um, to, to take advantage of, of these, um, these life privileges that I've been gifted with. 
And so that has driven activism to some extent for a while, but I understand there's almost like a, a, a shame that can, can be underlying with that. And so I think through a lot of the work that I've done, I've been able to find again, the, the higher vibration, the higher love that's calling and, you know, not feel like I'm, um, you know, in debt to this work, but that I am able to contribute in this way. And, you know, it just fills my, my soul and my spirit up to be able to contribute in, in, in this capacity as well. Milo, where can people learn more about uh, your work? Yeah, so, so people can learn more about Mercy for Animals at mercyforanimals.org. They can learn more about the Good Food Institute at gfi.org. I know both organizations are hiring. They're both um, funded completely by philanthropy. Um, if, if you're moved by their work, uh, you can support it by making donations. You can learn more by reading my book, Mercy for Animals. Uh, and you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's just at Milo Runkle. Milo, thank you so much. Mm, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I over the years have done so many interviews and they just can kind of get to be like the same, <laughs> the same conversation. And this was really, um, it was really refreshing to um, just have such a honest conversation about life. And um, yeah, really appreciated that. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.